Now, that's largely because people seem to be more committed to their selfish opinions, their own desires and what they want them personally, than they are to actual humble worship. Uh, when Stephen was talking about Matt Redman, there was a larger article in, in a magazine I read some years ago that they had such a problem with their music, they stopped it for quite a few months. No music at all. And that was one of their biggest factors in everything they did was this band they had and, and they were writing music and everything else. But they said they got so far away, they had to stop all music to get back what was worship all about. They completely forgot about it because they got wrapped up in the music. Well, it's true. So often we're so tied into what we want and what's going to make us feel good or what's pleasing to us, we forget why we've even come. And it really is to worship the Lord our God. There's also this common error that equates the musical part of the service with worship. And it's not. Music is only an aspect of worship. It is something that can help or hinder our worship, but it is not worship itself. And that's important for us to remember, okay? It is not worship, but it can be used to either enhance worship or it can be a detriment to it. Too often we find, and I've found this over the years, I've been here for 12 years, we've had a lot of visitors in 12 years, enough to fill this building about five times. And so often people come, but they want a certain style of music, and so they don't want to stay. We used to send out a survey where we'd ask them what's most important. And they'd say the preaching of the word. What they wanted was a particular style of music. If we didn't have it, then off they went somewhere else. And knowing where some of these people landed, I can assure you the preaching of the word was not what they were after because I know where they went. That's not trying to be detrimental to other churches. But there are not that many churches in Dutchess County where the word of God holds as central and where it's preached without compromise. A lot of places it's scattered here and there and trying to tell people what they want to hear. So we need to be careful. This is a touchy subject. Now, remember as well, I made this point last week, there is a big difference between form and content. Content is the message that's being communicated in the music. It's the, the words. Form is the manner in which that communication is being made. Content is what you say. Form is how you say it. And unless the proper form is used, the content will not be communicated clearly. Form can overpower content. It can confuse. It can even hide the message. Last week we saw that there's no such thing as a devil chord. There's no such thing as a devil beat. There's no sound that is inherently evil. And we looked at a lot of different scriptures showing that in the Old Testament all sorts of sounds were used to praise the Lord. Loud sounds, soft sounds, uh, clear sounds, noisy sounds, even discordant ones. All these things were used in the praise and worship of God. The Psalms invite us to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. So the form of music itself is non-moral. It can be good, used for good or it can be used for evil. It is the message and the context of usage, the purpose that brings about any evil that may be associated with the form of music. Now, in addition, there is no such thing as a musical instrument that's evil in itself. They, too, are unmoral. And we find the scripture that all sorts of musical instruments were used in praising God. I had a pastor stop by that this week and he immediately noticed the drums. The drums are not evil. Okay? They're not evil. They're used in the Old Testament. Not this type of drum. They didn't have this sophistication. They had skin stretched over some framing and they'd beat on that. But loud noises were used for praising God. So these are not evil. Musical instruments are really no different than our tongue. And James 3.10 tells us that our tongues can be used to bless or they can be used to curse. It's how you use it. So again, the problem in music is not the sound itself. It is in the evil hearts of men. The responsibility for evil lies at the door of men's hearts, not on the things themselves. And so we need to be cautious because evil men do take sounds and they do arrange them in a particular way because they have an evil purpose. 
Then there's also ignorant people. They're oblivious to the power of music. They're just playing or listening to whatever they think. This sounds good. However, they develop that taste in particular music. Not even aware of what kind of effect it may be having on them. Remember as well, good lyrics can be lost in inappropriate music. And poor lyrics, even heresy, can be promoted through the use of a tune that's pleasing. Now that truth applies to all music, not just worship music. But let's stick with worship music first. Now, I said last week there are some very good songs being written. We sang several of them this morning. Matt Redman's song, uh, Heart of Worship, is only, uh, I think, a couple years old. Very good, very heartfelt, um, and more so thoughtful, prodding us to really think deeply about what we're doing and the God it is that we're serving, what he is like, his character. There's some excellent stuff being written. Unfortunately, a vast majority of a lot of the stuff that's being written, much as it has been in the past, isn't written with a lot of thought in mind. Uh, Musicians tend to be, as a generalization, emotional people. So they write from their emotions, and they don't necessarily think deeply through what they're writing and why. The result is that a lot of things tend to be very simplistic and theologically shallow. There was a cartoonist that captured the idea that has been in a lot of the more recent choruses. It has a a fellow, he's got his guitar. I could grab a guitar and, and do it, but you wouldn't want me to play it. But he's got his guitar standing next to the pulpit and says, I just have this wonderful song that came from the Lord and I want to teach it to you. And the words are this. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. You repeat that eight times, then we go on. What, what's, I mean, it's fine to have repetition, but that's pretty shallow, isn't it? Praise the Lord for what? Why are you praising him? What is he like? What's his attributes? Now, Psalm 136 proves biblically there's nothing wrong with repetition. That has repetition all the way through it. But it has to do with the theological content. What is it really prodding you to do to think about the God that we serve? The God who created us and everything around us. Now, I've heard music leaders and even some preachers go the opposite direction. They're so much into contemporary music, the new stuff, that they say, uh, we don't need hymns anymore. They're too old-fashioned. We need music that's written, you know, the last five, ten years. Stuff that brings us up to date. Right? And I've heard that. But let me tell you, folks, when a song has been sung for 300, 400, 500 years or more, you can no longer judge that song. It has proven itself. It judges you. Does that make sense? You don't have something that goes through that many generations unless it has quality. It judges you. Choruses can be great. We use them, but they need to be used properly. They're very good for, uh, for bringing and inviting you into to praise God with us in a very simple way. Because they're easy to learn. That's why we can just throw them up on the screen and you can come in singing. can't come in with a hymn book because you'll stumble over somebody. But you can look at, at this and just come in singing. They're very simple. Eads invite you in. They can move you very quickly emotionally because we can run through several of them fast from you know, the hectic world you just came from to now my spirit is quiet. My mind now is more focused on God. I'm ready to worship. So they can move you emotionally. So they can be used very effectively. But they can never substitute for a well-written hymn. Now you think, now I'm going to do this big thing about why hymns are great. No, that's not true. Why can they not substitute? And the opposite is true. A hymn cannot substitute for a chorus. Look over at Colossians 3.16. Because Paul, this is just one place Paul says this. He says in a couple other places too. But he says this. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16. Admonishing, um, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, this is the proper response to worship of God. 
that you're thinking about him. Now, true worship is only going to come as a response. The Holy Spirit first has to be prodding you. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 tells us that. But as we are walking with the Spirit, the Spirit is controlling us, we will respond to the Word of God, which is dwelling richly within us. It's a response to what God has declared. And then in wisdom, we will be teaching and admonishing each other. But notice how that teaching and admonishing is even done. It's not necessarily preaching. That's done as well. But teaching and admonishing through a musical venue in three categories. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in my heart to God. So music is very powerful and it's also an, an extremely important teaching tool, admonishing tool, so we'll walk with Christ properly. But there's three kinds of music mentioned. First, there's psalms. Now, psalms refer primarily to the Old Testament psalms put to music. But the term is also used of vocal music of any type. Psalms. The psalms magnify God primarily by a focus on the nature and work of God, especially in relation to the life of a believer. A modern song would be something like, uh, Oh, Worship the King. These are focused in on God, his character, his attributes. That's a song. Then there are hymns. And hymns like the psalms um, are very similar. They're songs of praise. They differ in that they specifically are focusing in more on Christ, his work, uh, his relationship with us. In fact, many scholars believe that uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 16 is a psalm or is a hymn written in Scripture that was used in this manner. It was probably put to music as well. Modern hymns include songs such as May Jesus Christ Be Praised or Worthy is the Lamb, and we can go on and on. Then there are spiritual songs. Now, this is a very broad category. It includes songs of testimony and any music that expresses spiritual truth. That's a big category. So spiritual songs. That includes many of the revival songs from the last century, and it includes the modern choruses and songs that uh, we were singing this morning. So spiritual songs. Now, it's three categories. You have psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and all three are to be used in worship. All three of them. To eliminate a whole category claiming that they're old-fashioned, they're not relevant for today, it's not good worship, it not only displays an ignorant arrogance, but it severely handicaps the musical aspects of worship. All categories to be used. The key is to use them properly. Each can play a part in moving us toward the worship of God. And so we seek to maintain a proper balance. Music is powerful. It moves our emotions very strongly. Now, the problem with the various styles of music is that different people will react differently to various styles. They have a different perception of those styles. A style that one person says, this is so wonderful. I just walked away feeling like I had so close to God because it was just wonderful. They're very emotionally moved. Another person says, that was the most horrible thing. I couldn't worship God in there. I was so distracted by that noise. Same style, but two different perceptions of it and, and how it moves people. Now, that's one reason there's a lot of contention in music and church. You have people with such wide variety of tastes that are in contention each, with each other about the style. What's the form? But really, it's a debate that ends up centering on both selfishness and ignorance. The tension between contemporary and traditional music styles has and does is currently causing division in churches. Both sides are selfish in the debate. They want what they want irrespective of the effect it has on other people. And more importantly, irrespective of whether they're actually worshiping God. You may have felt great walking out, but did you actually worship the God who created you? Or did you have something that was nice and entertaining to you? How much worship really was there? 
I pointed out last week, if you show more passion defending your style of worship than obedience and service to the Lord, or if you're more agitated by what other Christians like about their worship than you are grieved over your sin, or if you have a greater concern about controlling or at least influencing how everybody must worship according to your standards than you are about being controlled by the Holy Spirit yourself personally, then don't fool yourself. You're not worshiping God. You are seeking a selfish experience. Really, it's it's a religious exercise for you. See, the heart of worship are those other things. What is my relationship with God really like? How am I responding to him? Am I grieved over my sin? Am I seeking the Lord to change me, to move me more to be like him, to understand his character and his attributes and, and all the things he has done more clearly so that I can worship him properly by praising him for those things? But so often we get in contention because, well, I like that song, but I don't like this song, and people go back and forth with it. Now, with all that said, let me present to you some things that must be then considered when we evaluate music for worship, and the same truths hold true for whatever you listen to for personal entertainment and music. Because the truths transcend what we do here on a Sunday morning. They should be true in our lives no matter what we're doing. Now again, I already demonstrated last week, there is no such thing as a devil's chord. It's not a particular sound that's evil in of itself. There's no particular beat, no rhythm that itself is of the devil. The form of the music is non-moral. But that non-moral music can be used for good or evil. It is the context of usage and the purpose that brings about an evil associated with any form of music. So how are we going to evaluate music? Let me ask you a question. We just saw Randall went home. We got to cheer him a couple weeks ago with, uh, let's see, where's Michael Chavoy? Our Marine who was in Operation Iraqi Freedom. I said soldier and he took issue. He was a Marine, not a soldier. Which was more, is more dangerous? Being out in, in action in Iraq or going to a hospital because you're sick and you're ignorant of the fact that the staff there is completely incompetent. Which is more dangerous? Okay. You're going to go to a concert. Which concert is going to be the most damaging to your soul? You can go to see Marilyn Manson, Kenny Rogers, or a Christian concert, but this group is actually from a cult. Which is more damaging to your soul? The cult concert. Just like the hospital is the more dangerous place to be. Why is that? Well, when we go to some place and we are very aware of the the danger there because it's obvious, like going to Iraq, or if you have to, for some reason, are assaulted by Marilyn Manson, you're aware of there's a problem here and you're on your guard. But if you go someplace where you think you're safe, you let your guard down and the evil influence comes in unaware. You not even know what's going on. And pretty soon you're being led astray. Now, the danger in music, then, is not the style of form. It is the content and the message, and the subtle ones are as deadly as the flagrant ones. Now, most hard rock groups are pretty blatant with their message, and it's basically it's just a selfishness. It's do whatever makes you feel good because you're autonomous. Now, am I correct on that? That's the philosophy behind most rock music. And Christians complain about that, and properly so. We should complain about that. That is not a good message for us to be hearing because you're not autonomous. You are under God's authority. You belong to him. Yet at the same time, now, a lot of you may not remember this song. Their Christian stations uh, were playing themselves Debbie Boone's song, You Light Up My Life. Now, that goes back probably 15 years. But the message in the song was no different than what was being espoused in rock music. But Christian stations were playing this one. What else can you say about lyrics that say, how could it be wrong when it feels so right? 
That is the same message as in much rock music. The Christian stations were playing that because, well, Debbie Boone was singing it. So it must be okay. But the message was just as evil. Now, there are several cautions then we need to take when it comes to style of music. But the first criteria of caution is the message presented. Is the message, it is the message that is most easily and objectively evaluated of any part of the music. What is it saying? So what is the message of the songs that you listen to? Wherever you are, in the car, at home, what's the message? Is that message morally good? Is it unmoral? Or is it evil? Is this a song that's building you up in Christ? Is it neutral? It really isn't affecting your spiritual walk one way or the other? Or is it something that's detrimental to your walk with the Lord? We also need to evaluate the style. And we need to think through this. It takes some work sometimes. But we need to ask ourselves some questions. Why does the composer use a particular type of beat or sound? What's he after? What emotion is the composer trying to create in you? And then what is the context? Is this an emotion I should be feeling in the context which I'm in currently? Is this a good thing or not? We should ask, is, is this a, a proper emotion in that context? But then also, is this song, the way it's written, so emotionally overpowering that you know, I'm losing control? I'm, I'm losing cognitive ability here because I'm just so in tune with the music and I'm kind of rocking with the beat and going on with it and off I go, oblivious to whatever's around me. And some music will do that. Now, that's subjective, but it's still proper and important to consider. Remember what I said last week about the studies in psychoacoustics. It dem they demonstrate in these studies that certain rhythms and beats, you play them repetitiously, you play them loudly, they have negative effect on you emotionally and sometimes even physically. So what is the style? Is this really, is this a proper emotion to be generated? Am I losing control? Now, much of the effect of music on our emotions is because we associate the sound, the rhythm, uh, the particular way that the style goes with, with something. Um, for example, we've had a lot of thunderstorms the last couple of weeks. I love thunder. I, thunder is wonderful to me, but it's the association I have with it. I associate thunder with going on vacation. Living in Southern California, you don't get thunderstorms. We got them when we went to Mississippi to see my dad's relatives, and then we had thunderstorms all the time. So that was vacation. And so here it is, all these years later, if it thunders, it's vacation time. This is wonderful. Plus, I just think it's, I, I love to watch lightning storms and God's power. But some people, you hear thunder and it's, you know, let's go hide. You hate lightning, Right. So for me, it's the most wonderful sound for you. It's like, yeah, I'm getting out of here. Where can I go hide? There's an association you have with it. Acoustic guitar. Jonathan's been asking me, will I buy him an electric guitar? Not yet. There's a couple of reasons. One, I want him to learn the acoustic guitar very well because we already have one of those. But second, I love acoustic guitar. But there's an association I have with acoustic guitar. Bible studies and campfires. That's where we always play them. And that's a wonderful association. Now, an electric guitar that you play distorted, I don't have a good association with that. Right, Jimmy? I've talked to Jimmy about this. Does that make distorted electric guitar bad? No. I just have a, an association with it. I associate it with heavy metal music, and I find it irritating. Okay? That's me. It doesn't make it evil in itself. It becomes a personal preference. There's associations we have with different styles of music. Uh, I like Western ballads. I, they're wonderful. I love Western ballads. Marty Robbins, we can... Those who like that, we can have, go out and have a sing on Western ballads. Because my father liked Western ballads. Played them all the time. My children, especially after this trip, now like Western ballads. We played them a lot as we were going across the West. 
Why do they like it? Because I like it. It's an association, isn't it? That is true for every single one of you. You associate certain sounds, certain rhythms, certain styles with something. It could be good. It could be evil. And what one person, they associate with good, someone else has a totally different association. Jimmy has a different association with distorted electric guitar than I have, right? He thinks it's cool. Wow, this is great. And he's having a blast up there. And I walk in and go, oh, I have a different association. Neither one is right or wrong. But you know what? We need to learn to be sensitive to each other, don't we? And that comes into this whole thing of this effect of music on us. You know, what are these associations? We've got to think about them. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they neutral? Now, if we're going to use something in music, uh, in worship, music in worship to enhance it, we must consider how people are going to associate that music generally. We don't want to use forms that most people are going to associate with evil. That's going to make it very difficult for them to worship, isn't it? I also need to consider what Paul says in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 about considering my brother and what might offend him. You see, I may have no problem with a certain style and it's, I think it's wonderful, but another person associates with something evil and for them it actually causes them to stumble. They can't handle it. It leads them off in the wrong path. So I want to be careful not to offend people. I want them to join me in worship. And that is why musically in this church we're conservative. We play mainstream stuff. You're not going to find radical in either direction. Why? Because we want the broadest number of people to be able to quickly join us in the praise and worship of our God. We don't want you coming in and being offended and caused to stumble because of what we're, we're playing up, up here. We're trying to help you to worship, not hinder you. It's also the reason why if we are going to introduce something new, we do it slowly. We want you to begin to associate that with something different than what you're used to. If I, if I, I'm going to pick on Jimmy a lot today because he's sitting in the front. If I spend enough time with Jim and he's playing this, I'll probably begin to learn to associate his style of playing guitar with something good because I'll associate with him. See, and he's good. <laughs> Shh, you didn't hear that, Jimmy. I didn't say it. All right? There's a different association we're going to start developing. Now, there's another danger here we need to be aware of, and that's mimicking the world. We're cautioned in several places. Second Corinthians chapter 6, big section there to be separate and not bound together with unbelievers, not to be bound with what is evil. There's a separation issue that comes up. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 admonishes us to abstain from all appearances of evil. Don't be involved with what is going to be perceived as something you're doing that may be good, but it sure looks like it's evil. Stay away from that. Then in 3 John 11, it tells us not to imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Now, that doesn't mean that certain styles of music are automatically guilty because of association. It does bring out a strong caution that we need to be careful about what we're doing and why we are doing it. So why do you use or listen to the styles you do? You've got to ask that question. What's driving it? Are you using this in a way that is glorifying to God? And we're going to look at how secular tunes are often turned to glorify God. Is that how it's being done? Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul talks about being all things to all people. Is it being used in some way to try to win people to Christ? What's the purpose? Or are you using the style simply because what pleases you? You like it. Is that the only reason you're doing it? Or perhaps are you doing this because you want the approval of your non-Christian friends? You want to fit in with them. You want to be accepted by them. Is that why you're using it? Now, some of the songs 
we consider very sacred actually come from secular origins. We need to be aware of that. The uh, tune Amazing Grace, it was first a plantation love song. It was. It's a plantation love song. No spiritual significance in it at all. John Newton wrote new words and used that tune, and it became what we now associate with as a very sacred song. You hear the tune immediately, you think of it's worshiping God, not a plantation love song. There's another hymn, we don't sing it here that, that often, but some of you may be aware of the one, uh, Hallelujah, Thine the Glory. Well, that was originally entitled Hallelujah, I'm a Bum. And it was a drinking song used in England. And the reference there to being revived again was alcoholic in nature, not spiritual. The words were changed and became a great revival song. Uh, composers, now Ralph Carmichael and John Peterson are now considered like almost staid, conservative. How could you be so... Ugh. Let's get, get something going here. But when they for, were writing in the 50s and 60s, they were considered radical and a lot of preachers preached against them because they were sacrilegious. They actually used syncopation. You can't use syncopation in worship music, can you? Well, now we think nothing of them. We think they're pretty quiet. Evangelist Billy Sunday, now we're going back even a lot farther, back into the late 1800s. He was considered, uh, well, he, he got in a lot of trouble with the Christian community. Because he had an innovative song called Brighten the Corner Where You Are. Brighten the corner where you... Mary knows that one. It was too much like the world, and so people were against it. So this is not a, a new problem. This has been going on for a long time. But the usage of popular form as a means to praise God is nothing new. Ron Allen, he's a professor of Hebrew at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, he has shown that many of the Psalms are adaptations of the forms that were in the surrounding cultures including the forms used in pagan rituals. In fact, in Psalm 93, and it's an interesting psalm to look at, it is written in a style for uh, Baal worship, a false god. In fact, it covers the exact same themes as a common form of Baal worship. The uh, first, but there's a difference here. Here is the God of Israel's praise, and he is shown specifically to be far superior to Baal. In verses 1 and 2, the Lord's presented as being girded with strength and firmly established on his throne from everlasting. Baal couldn't claim that. He had only recently gained his power. So there's a, a sharp contrast between the two. Then, um, again, in uh, sharp contrast is uh, verses 3 and 4. It declares that God is greater than all the mighty waves, the sea, and the floods. And we think, well, why is that so important to say in the psalm? Well, because in Baal worship... Baal's contention was with the false god Yam, who was his rival, who controlled the sea. God controlled it all. What kind of puny god do you have in Baal when our god controls everything? Your god could lose his power at any time. He only recently got there, and he can't even contend with the sea. Our god controls it all. The psalm was specifically written in the form of Baal worship as a conscious attempt to glorify the true god while debunking Baal. See, so you can use a secular form in a very thought-provoking way of showing we're superior. But then again, think about that. What would we expect? Our God can use anything to praise him. That shows part of his power. We need to be very careful about claiming some certain style or form is evil just because it's used by evil people for evil purposes. God has in the past, he has in the present used pagan forms of worship, had him changed around to bring praise to himself. But again, I believe that just shows how powerful our Lord is to use what had been used for our adversary for himself. Now, at the same time, 
There is a huge difference between adapting a secular song or style for use in glorifying God and mimicking the world style to make ourselves more acceptable to the world or to feed our own selfish desires. There's a big difference between the two. Purpose matters. The why question matters. Again, one thing, constantly take a style, even a particular song, it had been used for evil, turned around into something that praises God. But it's quite something else to mimic those who do evil because you want to identify with them. And that includes manner of dress, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. You have to considerably... You have to seriously consider why do you listen or play what you do? Doing it just because your friends are listening to it or doing it isn't reason enough for a Christian. You're to be a reflection of Christ. So who are you reflecting? Christ or your pagan friends? Well, let's talk about the character of good music. We've talked about some of the cautions. And again, the first criteria is theological quality. Does the song match a scriptural view of the world? Does it glorify what should be glorified and admonish against what is evil? It's true not just for what might be used for worship. This is true in every form of music you can think of. It applies to everything. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Paul admonishes us to think on these things. Whatever is true, honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything where you praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Music, as we have seen, is powerful. It will grab your attention and you're going, to be, you're going to learn the words. How often can you sing words to a song that you didn't realize you even learned the words, but you know them? It's teaching you something. We are to teach each other, admonish each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual song, songs. So what's the content? Extremely important. Does it match what we are told in Philippians to think on? So whatever is true... Altheus, if it contains lies, falsehoods, or simply an error, then it doesn't pass the test, does it? My first review of any song is its theological content. Now, that sounds fancy, but just as, does it match what God says? And many songs, both old and new, fail at precisely this point because they write what they feel, not what is true. And again, we learn a lot of our theology through what we sing, secular and sacred. We need to be careful about what we're listening to and what we're singing. Now, again, the standard applies not just to sacred music, but to secular music as well. Is it true in its message and what it says? Let me give you an example. Uh, Romantic love songs. Is there anything wrong with romantic love songs? No, not if they're reflective of God's view of it. If they're talking about trust and fidelity, commitment, uh, forgiveness that goes back and forth in the marriage relationship. Those are wonderful songs. And there's certainly been a host of them uh, written. Uh, going back to some older stuff, When I Fall in Love, there's the old country one, Stand By Your Man. Great commitment on the part of the, the wife in that song. Uh, uh, Fogelberg's song, uh, Longer. You know, this is how long is love is basically forever. Uh, Till the end of time, another one, same thing, or the wedding song. Well, the wedding music is all about these virtuous things that should be part of a marriage relationship. True romance, the kind that God approves of. But much of what's presented as quote-unquote love songs or romantic songs, I think you better term them lust songs. Because they're not talking about love, they're talking about one person's desire to exploit another person. 
And the song only reveals a selfish individual who wants to exploit another individual. What else can you do with a song in which a guy sings, and here's the lyrics, Hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? I'm sorry, that's not love. And there are so many with lyrics you can't repeat in public. You shouldn't repeat them in private either. Does the message of the song reflect biblical truth? Okay? That's a criteria. Does the message of the song reflect biblical truth? Second, whatever is honorable, uh, samenos. These are things of a uh, worthy character that corresponds to the truth. This word refers to uh, honorable in the sense of being dignified. In terms of worship music, you know, silly songs are, are fun, fine for a campfire, but they're not appropriate for worship. Why? Because they don't reflect God's character, and so they're not really worshipful. But we must also consider that entertainment music, there's a lot of fun, silly songs. Uh, I think of the Veggie Tales, you know, Larry sings silly songs. They're just funny and they're really silly. But there's a whole genre of songs that aren't just silly. They're crude. Or there's songs that uh, are demeaning. That's crossing the line. They're no longer honorable. I know for myself, this scenario I have to be careful. of. I love political satire. And there's a lot of political satire songs out there. But yet I'm told in Scripture that I am to properly honor those in their office. Romans 13, 7, 1 Peter 2, 17 specifically tells me to honor those who are in their office. I need to pray for them, 1 Timothy 2, 1. So if a song is demeaning them, it's one thing to poke fun. Another one, if you're demeaning them, it's really not appropriate, is it? So crude and demeaning songs, they're not honorable. They don't fit the criteria but you can sing along with Larry. Okay, kids? Sing along with Larry. Then there is the next characteristic, that which is just or right, dikaios. Uh, this is an adject, uh, the adjective form of the word for righteousness. This is that which is in conformity to the rule of God. It's what is right before his eyes. And so any song must be reflective of God's standards, and his standards are different than those of men. When it comes to worship music, the outward, the inward is considered for God looks at the heart, doesn't he? And a song well played by someone whose heart is far away from him is not worship of him. But a, a joyful noise, I think I mentioned if John Halpin came and did, did a solo for us, that's worship of God because his heart is right there. And that's what God's looking for. In entertainment music, the question must be asked if the song gives a message opposing God's commands, godliness. You can have a song that includes topics such as uh, drugs or drinking or infidelity or jail if they are written from the standpoint of God's view on that. Are they appropriate? Are they reflecting God's view? Are they, or are they in opposition to what God says about these topics? If the song condones or advocates things that are not fitting for a Christian, we shouldn't be listening to them. Next is pure. Hognos. This is the same word that we get our word holiness from. These are uh, songs of worship that are set apart to God. There, there is a whole genre there. He's the focus, not man. And, and so worship must be that way. If you examine the Psalms, what do you find? The focus is on God. If men are mentioned, it's in relationship to, uh, to God. The experience of a person can be described, but the focus, again, is on the Lord's character and actions. Many worship songs fail at this criteria, because they have the eye problem. They're all about themselves, not about the Lord. In musical entertainment, there's nothing wrong about singing of human experience, historical events, or anything in God's creation. 
The boundary for the Christian is when the song condones or advocates something as a replacement for God. There's a difference here because that's no longer pure. Let me give you an example. There's a Beatles song, Day by Day. Some people know it by the uh, title, My Sweet Lord. Now, that's been sung by Christians since they wrote it as as a way to praise God. You know what? That's okay. But if you listen to the original recording, that's not why the Beatles wrote it. And that's not what they have in their recording. It's a song song to a false god. It's sung to Hare Krishna. You got to listen to it. So it's one thing for you to take, take this song and for you to sing it personally to the Lord. It's another thing to listen to it, because if you're listening to it, you're listening to the pagan worship of a false god. That's not pure. So that shows you the different nature of even the same song of what you do with it. Another song that quickly comes to mind, maybe because there was a commercial on where they have everybody sing it, I did it my way. I did it my way. Well, I better not sing. You all leave. I did it my way. You think about that song. The whole song is about the virtue of self-autonomy. That's not a godly virtue, is it? Is that the kind of song you really want to be walking down the street singing or even singing in the shower? I did it my way. No, I want to do it God's way, not my way. His way is better than my way. That's not pure. Next, whatever is lovely. This is a proslay. This is a compound word. It literally means toward to love in friendship. Toward to love in friendship. In songs of worship, it means these are pleasing, they're agreeable. And just because a certain sound or rhythm is not sinful itself doesn't mean that it belongs in worship. There's a decorum that we try to maintain within a worship. We want the focus to really be on God. We don't want music overpowering things. Um, I see Stephen here today. But I, I want to tell you this publicly. I really appreciate the way, Steve, way Stephen's been playing the drums. Because if he was back there going, wang, 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 you know what? He's lost decorum because he's overpowering. But he's playing with appropriate decorum where he's accenting and helping in the worship. That's what I'm talking about. It's lovely. Now, the same thing really is true for musical entertainment. Again, no devil chord, no devil beat. Sounds and rhythm, though, can be used and are put together purposely for an evil purpose. And we need to be mindful of that. Again, you may not be offended by the music you're listening to, but are you considering the thoughts and feelings of those around you? I mean, how often have you gone into work or something and somebody cranks up something and it's just driving you nuts, right? You, you can't stand it. They have no thought and feeling for you is how you feel. They don't, don't they care anything about your taste? Turn to something that's palatable to everybody. So we have to ask a question. Is it offending them? Is it causing them to stumble? The Christian life is not about you. It's about letting Christ live through you. And loving others includes putting consideration for them above your own personal preferences. Next is a good report or good repute. Euphemos. Now, in worship music, this means that the effect of the music is that it causes you to praise the Lord, too. It makes you want to join in and, and sing and praise God, too. And remember, when we come together for worship, we give consideration to that effect on other people. And just because you like it doesn't mean others do. We try to balance that out and try and bring everybody in with a variety of styles. We want everybody to worship. We want it to be a good report and repute. Now, when it comes to musical entertainment, this means the song has a good reputation among those who are godly. Now, that's an important criteria, among those who are godly. Because if you're going to go by the music industry and who gets the awards by the music industry, 
that's a lousy criteria. The music industry gives awards to debauched people who write depraved stuff. And they think it's wonderful. And they get an award for it. That doesn't mean it's good music. It means evil people like evil people who write evil music. That's what that means. So that's not a criteria we need to go by. Um, like I said earlier, a lot of the reason we end up liking a particular style of music is because somebody that we think highly of likes it. In the case of Western ballads, my father likes it. I value my father. I like Western ballads. But a lot of people think it's the star. Some movie star, some uh, musical entertainer, somebody at school that is very popular. Well, if they like it, well, then I must learn to like it, too, because that's what everybody says is good. So I must be wrong. They must be right. I, I must like that stuff. That's one reason for fads, isn't it? Fads come up and they go down quickly because it's all about who's popular. Do they like it or not? And everybody switches because they don't have enough self-confidence to like something on their own merit. But we need to be careful here. It goes back to this question of association, identification I talked about earlier. Who are you trying to identify with? The Christian should be seeking to identify with the godly and follow their counsel. So if you're not sure about some kind of music, ask godly people. Not your friends, your peers. Ask godly people. Hopefully you have godly people as friends and peers. Ask them what they think. And the next, is it virtuous, excellent, or uh, a Songs used for worship need to be virtuous. They need to show moral excellence. The message, the quality of the form should procure a high esteem for the God that we serve. It should move people to a deeper understanding and desire for him. And the same should be true for the music we listen to as Christians for entertainment. Here's the question. Is the song morally excellent? Is it neutral or is it degrading? Remember this principles from several weeks ago? Ask those questions of the music you listen to. Is the song spiritually profitable? Is it a help or is it a hindrance in my walk with, with Christ? Is the music bringing me into bondage or is it causing me to lose control of my thoughts or my will? Am I using my freedom to listen to this music as a covering for my own evil desire? And are you violating your conscience listening to it? Does it reflect Christ's likeness? Does it bring glory to God or does it detract from his glory? You need to ask those questions of all sorts of things, including the music you listen to. Again, much of what is now popular in society, is, is, it condones or it advocates things that are contrary to the virtues of godliness. And so listening to songs about people who uh, either are or want to cheat on their spouses, that's not going to build you up in Christ, is it? If you're hearing people sing about how much they want to take drugs or get drunk or commit some, some crime... Is that going to help you walk in holiness? If um, you have music that's designed to turn your mind to mush and you're pulsating with the beat, is that really helping you in, uh, in walking with Christ or is it bringing you into bondage? You should ask those questions. Songs that glorify man and his accomplishments as opposed to God and his work do not reflect Christ's likeness. What is the moral virtue of the music you listen to. And then finally, praiseworthy. Epinos. Is it worthy for use in praising God? 
Or is it worthy of God's commendation? Music we use for worship, understand, is for God's pleasure, not our own. He is the one we're singing to, not to ourselves. We sing for his pleasure. So the quest for music and worship is to stimulate us to praise God. And so how much we like the song or don't like the song really shouldn't be the issue. It's not our like. It's how much are we giving to God in singing it. Perhaps you're doing better worship if you're singing a song you don't like, but it's reflective of really who God is, even if you don't like the style. Now, this characteristic of being praiseworthy also needs to be applied to secular music you listen to. Is it worthy of God's commendation? Or perhaps I can put this in a very simple way. If you're, say, riding in the car and listening to this, the radio or to what CD or whatever you got, and Jesus Christ is riding in the passenger seat, will he like it? Is that a good question? Would Jesus like it? Now, if you're a Christian, remember, Jesus Christ promised to be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with you. He's right there in the driver's seat with you. Does he like it? I think that's a pretty simple question. Would Jesus Christ like what you're listening to? If he would not, then maybe you shouldn't either. Does that make sense? That's a simple thing. Let me close with two very practical comments. First, don't be hypocritical. Correct your own listening habits, too. Parents often complain about what their children listen to. That's gone on for a long time. Or we might complain about what other people are listening to. And sometimes that complaint is, you know, there's, there's a reason for it. You write to complain about it. They're listening to the rock, rap, or something else that is, certainly doesn't fit Philippians 4 a. Yet at the same time, what you're listening to, whether it's pop or country, folk, jazz, or uh, easy rock or something like that, does it fit the criteria of Philippians 4a? See, we need to look first at ourselves and think through, is what I'm doing matching what God says I should be doing? Is the music I'm listening to fitting according to what God says here in Philippians 4a that I should be listening to? Now, this doesn't mean you shouldn't correct your children. You need to. It does mean you do need to correct yourself, too. So don't be hypocritical about it. In fact, you could have fun. If you like one style of music and your children like another, have, go over this, use the questions that are in the, the bulletin, and have your children critique what you listen to. That would be a lot of fun, wouldn't it? The kids are smiling. That would be a lot of fun. Okay? But we should be helping each other. Let's walk with Christ. And then be selective with what you fill your ears and mind with. Um, don't let some disc jockey who doesn't care about God make those decisions for you. In other words, if um, we want to use music the way God intended and not according to our adversary's design. If, if you don't have the self-control to, to hit the you know, selection button to change station on the radio whenever a song comes that really is not appropriate, if you, don't, you can't do that, then... It's worth the money. Buy some tapes. Buy some CDs. Uh, we'll get modern here. Get some MP3 things. That's for the kids. They're into MP3. But get something that actually is fitting. Music that is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and of good report. That which is virtuous and praiseworthy. Fill your mind with these things. Because it's not worth to have your mind filled with the garbage from our adversary. 
Our desire here is Psalm 147, 1 states, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Father, thank you again for your word and the challenge it gives us. And certainly there's a big challenge as we live in this world. Father, what a wonderful thing it is to live at a, in a time when technology has allowed us to take music with us anywhere. Not just what we can play on an instrument we can carry with us, but Father, full orchestras on a little disc. Father, to go back and hear people with beautiful voices sing things. Father, there's also great danger, we understand this as well, because our adversary has uh, guided and directed his followers to put a lot of stuff that would tear at our holiness, would seek to degrade us, deprave our minds and bring us into debauchery, would seek us to move us from holiness into complete unrighteousness by simply what we're listening to. And our desire is to become conformed to the image of your son. That's why you said you saved us, or one of the reasons, to be conformed to the image of your Son. Our desire is to have that happen. We long to see that happen, to be changed and put away this body of sin. We look forward to heaven for that reason. So, Father, we would ask your Holy Spirit, convict us in this area, all of us, because we would always become more discerning, to think through what we're doing and why we do it, that we might do that which is pleasing to you and helpful in our walk with you rather than detracting. In Jesus' name, amen.